The title, Critical Theory, Everyone's Oppressed, understood by way of hyperbole as everyone generally, fittingly describes the current American scene much like a book title 32 years ago, A Nation of Victims, The Decay of the American Character. In his preface, Charles Sykes observes, As anyone who has spent much time on campus these days knows, it is almost impossible to debate any issue of weight without running up against the politics of victimization. Its legacy is the tone of shrill intolerance and ethnic division. He adds, This rush to declare oneself a victim cannot be accounted for solely in political terms. Rather, it suggests a more fundamental transformation of American cultural values and notions of character and personal responsibility. Two years earlier, Shelby Steele eloquently expressed the powerful appeal victimhood held then and now with its reward of preferential treatment. Quote, The power to be found in victimization, like any power, is intoxicating and can lend itself to the creation of a new class of super-victims who can feel the pee of victimization under 20 mattresses." Unquote. Now, with 32 additional years of acting as the arbiters of valued victim status, it is no exaggeration to say America's leftist intelligentsia have, for generations, perpetually positioned themselves morally, politically, and culturally as exclusively incapable of bigotry, whether racially, sexually, culturally, or economically. Victimhood's power depends entirely on other people's eagerness to have onlookers judge their righteousness by indulging in the sin of partiality. James 2, 1-13. While their ideology guards themselves from being charged, leftists identify the victimizers and the victims according to their prescripted oppressor-oppressed narrative. To the chattering class, those with political media and academic connections, bigotry is the inherent character trait of people who inhabit the fruited plains between the east and west coasts, the kind of people epitomized by Archie Bunker in leftist Norman Lear's sitcom portrayed in All in the Family of the 1970s as a political social conservative, otherwise known as a bigot, even an anti-Semite. What has happened? Who are the bigots now? Who are the anti-Semites today? Since October 7, 2023, how have leftist politicians, media elites, and university administrators responded to university students who astonishingly endorse Hamas as the oppressed victims of colonizing oppressor Israelis? All they could muster was tepid, moral equivalency disavowals of violent behavior and hatred in all its forms. While testifying before members of Congress, Presidents of three prestigious Northeast universities failed to account for their coddling of genocidal Jew hatred when they vigorously prosecute alleged microaggressions among members of other so-called minorities or protected classes. The Biden administration continued its Middle East pro-Israel policy 
called for the Israel Defense Force to provide humanitarian pauses in its military action against Hamas and announced in almost the Babylon Bee style its national strategy to counter Islamophobia. Attentive culture watchers have observed the rise of anti-Semitism on university campuses and thus throughout our society. It has not occurred undercover. There have been numerous warnings against anti-Semitism, even from within the academy itself. DEI's inverted concepts concerning compassion, equity, and anti-racism fuel class envy, a vengeful craving for retribution. As Barton Swaim observes, demonizing people in racial terms because they're successful turns out to have consequences. Now, after at least 20 years of discussion, black race hustlers aided and abetted by academic and corporate diversifiers have identified Jews as white people, a racialized code word for people of European descent, accepting themselves, of course, because their leftist ideology redeems them. Eventually, thousands of Jews who emigrated to America or to Israel from Europe after World War II could not escape critical theory's prescriptive narrative that categorizes people either as white or people of color, but more decisively, either as oppressors or oppressed. Hence, now Jews, such as Dennis Prager, are classified as white, meaning they are oppressors. Only Jews who oppose Israel, the accused oppressor, and empathize with Palestinians, the alleged oppressed, escape critical theory's latest iteration for indictment and prosecution. Hence, as we shall see, thousands of Jewish academics and university students subjected to DEI indoctrination rush to exempt themselves from leftist prosecution, virtue signaling publicly that they are among the DEI redeemed. Three episodes in 2023 set back DEI's cultural domination. On December 21, 2023, National Review published Noah Rothman's cautiously optimistic article, DEI's Year in Retreat. Rothman acknowledges that DEI, an Orwellian newspeak acronym for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion ideology, has captured universities and public education, both elementary and upper grades, has infiltrated every level of American politics and government, and has also corrupted scientific research and the practice of medicine. Nonetheless, he concludes, quote, the battle against DEI has not been won, but has been joined. For the first time in a long time, DEI advocates are on the back foot. There will be counter-offensives. There always is. But, but for now, DEI is in retreat, and its opponents are poised to maintain their tempo of operations into 2024. Two events during 2023 prompt his assessment. My own assessment would replace retreat with something more modest. 
Hence, perhaps another title would be DEI's Year of Setbacks. Also, as evidence of his assessment, Rothman could have justifiably added a third episode that arose from the second event, which I will present. Students for Fair Admissions versus President and Fellows of Harvard College. First is the United States Supreme Court decision, Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus President and Fellows of Harvard College, June 29, 2023. The justices reversed earlier court decisions that upheld race-based admissions policies, ruling that both Harvard's and University of North Carolina's admissions policies and programs violate the, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The court struck down so-called affirmative action and reaffirmed the original understanding of the U.S. Constitution as colorblind. The decision's implications for private enterprise were clear. DEI's job postings dropped by 38% within two months. Three earlier Supreme Court decisions aided and abetted the cause of racial preferences. Griggs v. Duke Power Company, 1971, gave leftists disparate impact, a legal policy upholding the notion that no matter how neutral a criterion may be when equally applied to all, whether in education, employment, or housing, it harmfully penalizes some minority races. During deliberations, Justice William O. Douglas reasoned, racial discrimination against a white is as unconstitutional as racial discrimination against a black. He appealed to Justice Thurgood Marshall's argument 23 years earlier in Brown v. Board of Education that the Constitution is colorblind in our dedicated belief. Thurgood Marshall responded, You guys have been practicing discrimination for years. Now it's our turn. Thus the decision legitimated preferentiality, also known as discrimination. When Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was head of the EEOC under President Reagan, he stated, The most devastating form of racism is the feeling that blacks are inferior, so let's help them. What we had in Georgia under Jim Crow is not as bad as this. This racism is based on the sympathy that says that because of your race, we will give you excuses for not preparing yourself and not being as good as you can be. In Regents of the University of California versus Baki, 1978, the Supreme Court called for partiality when dealing with college applicants based on skin color. Justice Lewis Powell imposed a new use of the word diversity to restructure colleges through the admissions offices. Colleges and universities aggressively pushed to achieve diversity as an outcome. In a third decision, Connecticut v. Teal, 1986, the Supreme Court ruled that any policy or job qualification that results in 
a company's disproportionate racial hiring is prima facie evidence of racial discrimination. No longer did alleged victims of discrimination have to identify specific policies or actions as discriminatory. Simple numerical imbalance in hiring was all the evidence of discrimination needed. It is worth noting the original meaning of affirmative action as used by Presidents John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson in their respective executive orders of March 6, 1961 and September 24, 1965 meant the opposite of what the expression has come to mean, and it was restricted to government contracts. The presidential orders required government contractors to take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. Plainly stated, affirmative action originally meant that race, creed, color, or national origin were to have no role at all in hiring. Martin Luther King Jr. memorialized this essential meaning of affirmative action in his I Have a Dream speech on August 28, 1963, when he intoned, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. As George Orwell forewarned, leftists under the spell of critical theory, thus committed to newspeak, are masters at verbal nimbleness, duping the naive masses by imposing their narrative demanding that reality must conform to their anointed vision. Hence, they inverted the meaning of affirmative action to require partiality in hiring and admission of students. Universities as incubators of anti-Semitism. Noah Rothman points to the aftermath of Hamas's massacre of Israelis on October 7, 2023, as a second indicator that DEI is in retreat. Immediately following the surprise attack and continuing until now, Advocates of DEI, especially university presidents, faculty, and students, rendered the attack a highly abstract expression of anti-colonial grievances. Protecting and encouraging anti-Semitism even calls for the genocide of Jews. Universities, especially prestigious Harvard, became exposed as incubators of hatred. Anti-DEI activism, led by Christopher Rufo, a journalist, moved DEI toward the center of American cultural concerns. Joelle Emerson of the DEI consulting firm Paradigm laments, Those critiquing DEI aren't just the extreme, right-wing, anti-progress activists, like the group who challenged affirmative action. She grieves. There are also liberal-leaning people who are likely values aligned with DEI in principle, but confused and misguided about what the work looks like in practice. Rothman responds, no one is confused. He points out that playing the victim of alleged oppression 
to obtain prejudicial benefits for one's ethnic group at the expense of the presumed oppressor is, quote, the social configuration to which most vertebrates are instinctually predisposed, end quote. The uniformity, inequity, and exclusion at the core of the deceptively named diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives are becoming increasingly transparent to individuals who couldn't say as much in polite company without risking exposure to professional consequences. The Supreme Court's decision of June 29 and exposure of DEI-born anti-Semitism emerging since October 7 has bequeathed permission to identify DEI's fashionable form of prejudice by its name in public discourse. Harvard's unqualified DEI-hired president. Rothman published his article before a third episode fully emerged from the second to justify his guarded claim that 2023 saw DEI retreating. The exposure of America's universities, now the established havens of deep-seated tribal contempt, most recently exhibited against Jews as colonizing oppressors, and Hamas and Palestinians as the oppressed victims, featured Harvard University from which the third episode arose. When she testified before Congress on December 5, 2023, concerning responses to anti-Semitic protests at Harvard, Claudine Gay thrust herself into the limelight for intense scrutiny by her refusing to respond to Representative Elise Stefanik's simple yes or no question whether calls to murder Jews and extinguish Israel were protected speech on campus. When pushed multiple times, Gay finally retorted, it can be protected speech depending on the context. Harvard's tolerating calls for the genocide of Jews is a kind of freedom of speech the university notoriously does not practice with equity toward conservatives. Claudine Gay's defiant no-apologies posture did not end her brief tenure. On December 12, 2023, the Board of Governors announced, We unanimously stand in support of President Gay, explaining, Our extensive deliberations affirm our confidence that President Gay is the right leader to help our community heal and to address the very serious societal issues we are facing. Since October 7, President Gay's moral ineptitude to rebuke the anti-Semitism on campus, compounded by her documented plagiarism, publicly displayed Harvard's institution-destroying affirmative action hiring and admissions policy declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in June. Gay's refusal to rebuke or punish Harvard's students who called for the genocide of Jews, her unwillingness to condemn the same while testifying before Congress, and her blatant plagiarism in her dissertation and other publications occasioned her resignation, but none were the acknowledged official cause. She refused to acknowledge her moral blunders, but instead played the oppressed victim of racism, 
confirming her DEI appointment to the presidency by whining. Amidst all of this, it has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor, two bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am, and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and the threats fueled by racial animus. The electronic and print media blame Chris Rufel for Gay's short presidency. Influential was Harvard's billionaire alumnus, Bill Ackman, who called for Gay's resignation and subsequently for the Board of Governors to resign because they compromised their integrity, refusing to terminate Gay so they could temporarily disclaim responsibility and avoid the inevitable racism accusation. He was naive concerning DEI previously regarding it as a virtue. He acted only after visiting faculty and students on campus where he discovered that anti-Semitism was not the core of the problem, vile as it is. It was simply a troubling warning sign. He came to realize that the root cause of anti-Semitism at Harvard was an ideology that had been promulgated on campus, an oppressor-oppressed framework that provided the intellectual bulwark behind the protests helping to generate anti-Israel and anti-Jewish hatred and speech and harassment. Ackman finally realized that this dominating ideology was the diversity, equity, inclusion movement, which played a significant role in Claudine Gay's appointment as president of Harvard because he learned the presidential search process excluded candidates that did not meet the DEI criteria. Both Gay's appointment as president and departure exhibited the truth that she held the position because of intersectionality, skin color, and sex. While ignoring her theft of intellectual property and her grievous bumbling before Congress, her defenders cried racism, trampling over her as an individual with free agency to identify her as a member of an intersectional class, black and a woman. Al Sharpton, who invariably inserts himself into such situations, led a sit-in protest of Bill Ackman declaring, Now we have one of the richest men in America attacking a black woman whose academic credentials are impeccable, treating her not as a human with personal agency, but as a token representative of a class. Sharpton elaborated, President Gay's resignation is about more than a person or a single incident. This is an attack on every black woman in this country who's put a crack in this glass ceiling. Most of all, this was the result of Bill Ackman's relentless campaign against President Gay, not because of her leadership or credentials, but because he felt she was a DEI hire. Truthfully, Claudine Gay embodies the essence of DEI with its potent asset, intersectionality. Now a group of Jewish graduate and law students at Harvard have filed a lawsuit against the university for failing to counter the anti-Semitic harassment on campus. All these events, from my vantage point as a university professor who has critically assessed the movement for more than 30 years, suggest it is reasonable to say that DEI's hegemony has suffered some significant setbacks in 2023.
Having conquered the major American universities on their long march through the institutions, cocksure social justice warriors of the diversity, equity, inclusion, cultural revolution overreached, attempting to seize and cross a bridge too far. By removing Jews from members of the oppressed protected class to be labeled white oppressors. With one of their own residing in the White House after suspending their anti-disestablishmentarian chaos three years ago, when they maximally exploited George Floyd's death by setting our nation on fire with impunity, the brigade of DEI marchers emerged from their university boot camps to resume the protests, this time against Zionists, the new code word for Jews. As Greg Gutfeld, whose frequently raw analysis is often correct, says, they took the pro-Hamas cause and they slipped it right into the BLM costume. Never mind the radicalism, the violence, the sexual atrocity. They took the costume of the oppressed and they switched it. Now the Jews are the oppressor. Holocaust Education and the Rise of Antisemitism Many find it inexplicable that with millions visiting the United States Holocaust Museum and the prestigious universities where for decades courses concerning the Holocaust have been taught within their so-called diversity programs, universities have become hosts to anti-Semitism among students and faculty. A recent Harvard-Harris poll among 2,034 registered voters reflecting responses to Hamas's October 7 terrorism, shows that when asked, do you think that Jews as a class are oppressors and should be treated as oppressors, or is that a false ideology? 73% said no, but 67% of 18 to 24-year-olds responded yes, Jews are an oppressor class. The survey also shows that 51% of the same younger age group affirmed that the long-term solution to the Israel-Palestinian conflict is for Israel to be ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians. The survey also shows that 51% of the same younger age group affirmed that the long-term solution to the Israel-Palestinian conflict is for Israel to be ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians. Three years ago, Pamela Paresky astutely observed, in the critical social justice paradigm, Jews who have never been seen as white by those for whom being white is a moral good are now seen as white by those for whom whiteness is an unmitigated evil. Ponder how insightful this is. To make her case how university classrooms brainwash students, she presents a composite account based on real trainings, classes, resources, and the experiences of actual students being subjected to DEI propaganda because some readers may not fully understand the extent to which our universities are promoting and exporting a certain kind of indoctrination, one that has especially profound consequences for Jews. Pareski sounds the alarm. Simply put, the critical social justice movement, informed by critical theory, 
represents an assault not just on core concepts of liberal democracy, but also on the epistemology that undergirds it. Thus, as a Jew to others, she offers five admonitions, the initial one the most important. First, not only must Jews reject the victim narrative, we must also decline to participate in any us-versus-them paradigm. She concludes with this, But if this is to change, it will take a concerted effort by Jewish leaders, individuals, and organizations to remind us all that we are not characters in others' scripts. We are not required to play the parts that others have written. We can and we must reject any identity and any worldview that is inconsistent with our own past and our own social justice story. Jewish values and habits of mind are among the gifts of our heritage. Only when we are true to who we are and strive to be as Jews can we do our part to repair the world. In May 2023, Dara Horn asked, Is Holocaust education making anti-Semitism worse? She explains, The bedrock assumption that has endured for nearly half a century is that learning about the Holocaust inoculates people against anti-Semitism. But it doesn't. Conversations with museum curators and educators prompt her to say, I have come to the disturbing conclusion that Holocaust education is incapable of addressing contemporary anti-Semitism. In fact, in the total absence of any education about Jews alive today, teaching about the Holocaust might even be making anti-Semitism worse. Horn correctly notes that Holocaust education has failed to counter anti-Semitism. She has a theory of why this is. Though the problem is much worse, doubtless, Dara Horn isolates a contributing problem with Holocaust education that fails to counter the contemporary burgeoning anti-Semitism. One problem with using the Holocaust as a morality play is exactly its appeal. It flatters everyone. We can congratulate ourselves for not committing mass murder. This approach excuses current anti-Semitism by defining anti-Semitism as genocide in the past. When anti-Semitism is reduced to the Holocaust, anything short of murdering six million Jews seems minor by comparison. Twenty-five years ago, Peter Novick argued that memorializing the Holocaust as victimization would have this deleterious effect in his book, The Holocaust in American Life. He contends that in the 1940s and 1950s, American Jews believed they had more reason than others to shun a victim identity, and this resulted in conscious decisions to downplay the Holocaust. However, the victim culture emerging from the civil rights movement of the 1960s and 1970s shifted perspective on the virtue and usefulness of identifying as victims of German anti-Semitism. They had little in the way of credentials to identify as victims because American Jews were by far the wealthiest, best educated, most influential, in every way most successful group in American society, a group that compared to most other identifiable minority groups suffered no measurable discrimination and no disadvantages on account of that minority status. Nevertheless, by the 1980s, many Jews seized the opportunity 
to establish that they too were members of a victim community. Novick observes that establishing group identity in victimhood, now called identity politics, creates a competitive game of show and tell, with members of the various alleged oppressed classes attempting to outdo one another for the greatest victimization. Thus, Novick states, in Jewish discourse on the Holocaust, we have not just a competition for recognition, but a competition for primacy, which became called intersectionality. Consequently, many Jews insist on the uniqueness of the Holocaust, which prompts them to become angry when they hear the word applied to other mass slaughters. From this, early multiculturalists developed and sustained a form of cultural appropriation, which, given their ideology, would be better called cultural misappropriation. Thus, it is not rare for someone who uses the uncapitalized word Holocaust to describe atrocities, material or conceptual, to be severely rebuked with demands to apologize for inappropriately invoking the word. So sacrosanct is the word Holocaust that many Jews take deep offense when others use the word in ways they do not authorize, as in the recent case when several compared Hamas's mass murder of the Israelis on October 7 with the Nazis' mass murder of Jews in death camps during World War II. Thus, in November 2023, many social justice-sensitized scholars of the Holocaust published an open letter on the misuse of Holocaust memory, reprimanding public figures who have suggested that Hamas's terroristic assault on Israelis brings to memory the Nazi Holocaust. An equally impressive number of reasonable university professors of history published an exchange of Holocaust memory to counter an open letter on the misuse of Holocaust memory. They remind all readers, but especially their letter-writing counterparts, of the tight correlation between German Nazis and the Muslim Brotherhood from which Hamas emerged. These university professors of history closed their letter by stating, it is not an exaggeration, nor is it a misuse of history or memory, to assert that Hamas is a contemporary expression of ideas that stand in a longer reactionary tradition of Jew hatred, racism, and terror. An unflinching gaze at the connections between past and present in Hamas' dictatorship and its actions is essential. Novik affirms the same that all historical events that entail a massive slaughter of fellow humans, including the Holocaust, have resemblances and differences, but to claim that the Nazi Holocaust is unique, having nothing in common with other mass genocides, such as the Turkish slaughter of Armenians in 1915. Novik reasons, the assertion that the Holocaust is unique is, in practice, deeply offensive. What else can all this possibly mean except your catastrophe, unlike ours, is ordinary. Unlike ours, it's comprehensible. Unlike ours, it is reprehensible. Antisemitism, Critical Theory, and the Dramatic Irony of Critical Theory's Antisemitism. Antisemitism on University Campuses, a Redux from a Century Earlier. Neil Ferguson states, it might be thought extraordinary that the most prestigious universities in the world 
should have been infected so rapidly with politics imbued with anti-Semitism. Yet exactly the same thing has happened before. He reflects on the anti-Semitism of Western universities, particularly in America, and the anti-Semitism at German universities a century ago, and warns, anyone who has a naive belief in the power of higher education to instill morality has not studied the history of German universities in the Third Reich. Ferguson draws a reasonable ironic correlation between Germany and America, separated by a century. Ferguson states, The lesson of German history for American academia should by now be clear. The final solution of the Jewish question began as speech. To be precise, it began as lectures and monographs and scholarly articles. It began in the Songs of Student Fraternities. With extraordinary speed after 1933, however, it crossed into conduct, first systematic pseudo-legal discriminations, and ultimately a program of technocratic genocide. His point is that the same is occurring at America's universities, with perhaps one exception. Today's leftists deceive their devotees by cloaking their racism in encoded words and slogans, calling it anti-racism. All their various mantras deliberately conceal their pursuit of uniformity of thought, partiality in judgment, and exclusion of those deemed enemies of the ideology. America's university professors teach and advocate racism in the Orwellian name of diversity. Unlike their American counterparts, the nationalist academics of interwar Germany were at least overt about their desire for homogeneity and exclusion. Ferguson rightly argues, American universities cannot regard anti-Semitism as just another expression of hate. That is why Claudine Gay's double standard, with their implication that African Americans are somehow more deserving of protection than Jews, are so indefensible. He adds, that is why rational minds recoil from her argument that anti-Semitism on the Harvard campus is tolerable so long as genocide is not being perpetrated. To insist that the Holocaust is unique, an exceptional historical crime standing apart from all other organized acts of violence perpetrated against so-called minorities or protected classes diminishes, even minimizes, the horror and vileness of wanton slaughter, torture, rape, and kidnapping of Israeli Jews on October 7, 2023. Critical Theory Conceived by Jews, Now Exploited Against Jews When the Nazis came to power in 1933, members of the Institute for Social Research founded at Goethe University, Frankfurt, in 1923, fled Germany for two reasons. They were Jewish and communists, both opposed by national socialists, the Nazis. The institute was briefly transplanted to Geneva, Switzerland, but shortly after it migrated to the United States at the invitation by John Dewey to locate at Columbia University in New York City. From there, members of the Institute began to influence major American universities with their neo-Marxist critical theory applied to the culture, from which the designations neo-Marxism, or the more descriptive cultural Marxism, derive. Cultural Marxism is a well-established expression within academia, yet leftist gaslighting 
a deceptive form of manipulation and psychological control, has convinced useful idiots and apparatchiks devoted to the movement that cultural Marxism is the boogeyman of a far-right anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that misrepresents the Frankfurt School as being responsible for modern progressive movements, identity politics, and political correctness. In keeping with Antonio Gramsci's The Long March Through the Institutions, Max Horkheimer kept the institute focused on shaping the academy, for he and his fellows understood that Western politics is downstream from the Western Academy. Members of the Frankfurt School flourished at Columbia, Harvard, Brandeis Universities, and elsewhere. Among the many university students influenced directly by members of the Frankfurt School, perhaps the most prominent is the well-known radical Angela Davis. Until Horkheimer became director, the Institute followed a classical Marxist path, but in 1930, the new director redefined the school's direction as neo-Marxist, with its primary interests in restructuring Western culture. Critical theory is a totalizing view of and for the world, beginning with a biting social critique aimed at exposing and dismantling the corrupt foundations and oppressive nature of capitalist society. Horkheimer opposed what he calls traditional theory, namely Western culture with critical theory. He believed Western culture, shaped so profoundly by Christianity, obstructed human liberation. Western culture needed to be critically exposed, changed, deconstructed, and replaced with a neo-Marxist-derived culture. To rearrange the structures of society, the Frankfurt School's cultural Marxists, unlike the Bolsheviks, chose neither politics nor guns, but the potently injurious idea they forged called critical theory to capture the academic realm. Critical theory is deliberately destructive, overturning Western culture's structures of authority. Theodore Adorno, Walter Benjamin, Herbert Marcuse, and other Marxist intellectuals significantly assisted Horkheimer. They developed an intoxicating blend of classical Marxist teachings with Freudian psychology. Their agenda agreed with the diabolical schemes advanced by Antonio Gramsci, an Italian, and Georg Lukacs, a Hungarian, who independently concluded that the obstacle to communism's advancement in the West is the culture itself so heavily shaped by Christianity. They believed the West would need to be de-Christianized. Gramsci conceived what he called a deep and thorough long march through the institutions. He schemed, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. In the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. Gramsci's dream became a reality in the Frankfurt School. Their objective was to demoralize Westerners by sapping their will to resist the Marxist ideology cleverly conceived with Newspeak. Thus, culture rather than economics became the Frankfurt School's battlefield, seeking to disrupt the traditional family, engulfing universities, colleges, schools, the media, entertainment, civic organizations, literature, science, history, and the church. Long after Gramsci, Lukacs, Horkheimer, Adorno, Marcusa, and others have died. 
we would be fools to deny that their ideological progeny have largely achieved their mission. Yet cultural Marxism has suffered some notable setbacks during 2023. Long after they had taken possession of America's major universities, overconfident social justice warriors of the diversity, equity, inclusion, cultural revolution overreached, attempting to seize and cross a bridge too far by removing Jews from members of an oppressed, protected class and attacking them as white oppressors. The world watched and cheered when crowds of Germans began to dismantle the Berlin Wall on November 9, 1989. Yet that was hardly the collapse of communism. Whether the report was accurate or not, in 1956, attentive folks who grew up during the Cold War years remembered the account of Nikita Khrushchev boastfully claiming, We will take America without firing a shot. We do not have to invade the United States. We will bury you from within. Thus, while millions applauded the wall's demise, alert observers came to recognize something else was happening. Rather than pointing to the demise of Marxism, the wall's removal signified the success of the long march through the West's institutions. Why maintain a territorial wall of separation any longer? While Westerners were fixated on resisting the aggression of classical Marxism, notably engaging in a Cold War and wasting the lives of Americans in the jungles of Vietnam, pretending to counter Marxism's militarism, the West was yielding to cultural Marxism. 50,000 of America's youth took up arms at the demands of the American government and perished, while their friends attended universities where their minds were being brainwashed to embrace critical theories cultural Marxism. Now, 25 years later, the tyrants we face are not Russian communists or the Viet Cong, but American cultural Marxists, Lenin's useful idiots, trained in our own schools and universities, who have been duped to embrace critical theories ideology, even as they deny it. And worse, cultural Marxism has penetrated evangelical churches, seducing college students, seminarians, and pastors. Roger Kimball well states, The culture that produced Claudine Gay has infiltrated every institution of our society. Patients will die needlessly, and planes will plummet from the skies, but cheer up, diversity quotas will have been met. DEI is like Soviet communism. It caused everything else to fail until, at length, there was nothing left to fail except communism itself. Conclusion Here we are, less than a century after the night of broken glass, and once again Jews face anti-Semitic tyranny all over again, just like their ancestors, this time not in the Axis countries of Germany and Italy, and their conquered territories, but in the allied countries of the United States, Great Britain, and France. Now, no Nazi mobs chant threats against Jews, but Marxist mobs of students, aided and abetted by faculty, administrators, university presidents, and boards of directors, all who have embraced critical theory imported to the United States by Jewish Marxists from the Frankfurt Institute, who fled the anti-Semitic and anti-communism of Nazi Germany, 
Jews who once were viewed as the oppressed to be protected from white oppressors by leftist guardians and their allies are now viewed as white oppressors by the same leftist guardians for whom whiteness is absolute vileness. Thus, strangely, many who rage against Israel are Jews themselves. What a historical irony. Does 2023, a year of setbacks for critical theory, foreshadow its demise? Every form of Marxism, classical or cultural, is suicidal, eventually destroying itself. It took about 70 years for the Soviet Union to crumble and disintegrate. Cultural Marxism in the West is approaching its 70th year. With its setbacks in 2023, perhaps we are witnessing the beginning of its end. What will fill the vacuum it leaves? Let us fill that vacuum with the good news as it is in Jesus Christ. To do this, we Christians must understand and replace critical theory with the only true message of hope for all humanity. Whether they are willing to admit it or not, for leftists, the oppressor versus oppressed ideology by which they interpret the world is their righteous cause, their essential religious belief system, no matter what formal religion with which they may identify, including Christianity. Hence, while on Real Time with Bill Maher on November 10, 2023, it seems Jordan Peterson spoke better than he understood. The leftists have already decided the Palestinians are the victims. If you're a victim, then you're morally righteous. Even more conveniently, if you stand for the victim, then you're morally righteous regardless of what you do with your own life. According to their belief system, being a victim of oppression bestows a righteous standing. The next best righteous standing is to embrace allyship with oppressed victims. To those who take up the cause of correctly identified oppressed victims and oppose the properly recognized oppressor, the diversity, equity, inclusion trinity bestows righteousness. This is the only hope critical theory offers devotees. Consider how DEI's critical theory and its application hijack and subvert the good news as it is in Jesus. Leftists' ideological beliefs embrace impersonal cultural determinism, which Marcuse called repressive tolerance that robs all people of agency. Repressive tolerance is the notion that, by upholding equality of opportunity under the law, but not guaranteeing equality of outcomes, Western societies repress individuals. Reverse repression and intolerance are necessary to dismantle Western society's structures that resist guaranteed outcomes. The DEI view of and for the world is a bottomless pit of appealing to base human passions, such as the sins of surrendering agency of accountability, embracing resentful greed, giving vent to raging envy, demanding those with greater possessions, whether tangible or intangible, to show partiality to others. Thus from its inception, critical theory's gospel became rooted in what Jean-Jacques Rousseau identified as resentment, and developed by Friedrich Nietzsche, given birth to by the marriage of Marxism and Freudian psychoanalysis. It is a pathology that feeds on perceived differences such as wealth, outward appearance, intelligence, etc., between oneself and others. Herbert Schlossberg captures this well. 
Resentment whispers continually, I can forgive everything, but not that you are, that I am not what you are, indeed that I am not you. The other's very existence is a reproach. Thus, resentment must be satisfied by debasing and harming the perceived oppressor. Hence, Ibram Kendi publicly stated what others privately whispered among allies. If discrimination is creating equity, then it is anti-racist. If discrimination is creating inequity, then it is racist. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Individual choices are rendered ineffective by one's situation, whether one is an oppressor or oppressed. For both, social engineers proclaim critical theory as the good news of liberation from life's deterministic, repressive circumstances. For the repressed, systemic oppression renders their individual choices ineffective. They cannot rise above their repressive circumstances. Hence, the perpetual demand for diversity, equity, inclusion officers, consultants, and coaches. For repressors, even if they have never personally engaged in conscious repressive actions, they are nonetheless guilty of systemic domination, needing liberation from their unconscious biases and unintended microaggressions. Their only hope is to do unending penance, first by embracing critical theory and then by becoming allies in the liberation of the oppressed, however ineffectual that is. Their intentions are crucial, not whether anyone can really effect liberation for repressed individuals. Thus, for leftists, public preening known as virtue signaling is their righteousness. Roger Scruton insightfully identifies how Marxism expands its influence. It is not the truth of Marxism that explains the willingness of intellectuals to believe it, but the power that it confers on intellectuals in their attempts to control the world. And since it is futile to reason someone out of a thing that he was not reasoned into, we conclude that Marxism owes its remarkable power to survive every criticism to the fact that it is not a truth-directed, but a power-directed system of thought.